All righty, welcome back for our Q&A time. Our first question is, I don't understand the reason for fasting. I know it is not to win favor with God or pay some type of penance or gain favor, yet the Bible says when you fast, so there must be, uh, that, that must mean that we are to do it. Why? Yeah, have you ever wondered why, they, why, why it's called fasting when it goes by so slow? <laughs> no, but uh, my understanding it has to do with your mind. When you fast, you actually enhance cognition. Uh, when you fast, you improve neural circuitry, neural processing. Uh, you open your mind to uh, be more in tune with uh, potentially new ideas. If you eat, if you eat and eat particularly uh, multiple multiple types of foods, but heavy meal, you'll find that you're a little sluggish. The blood goes into digestion. You don't have the same circulation in your brain. So when you have something very important to talk with the Lord about, to problem solve over, to uh, to to wrestle through, fasting can enhance your cognition and the speed of your mind, so that you can have a better connection with God and a better comprehension of the issues and struggles and your mind can think better. So it's primarily that's what it's about in my understanding. It also teaches um, self-sacrifice and self-deprivation because okay, so there, our, our, first, our first temptation was through the through appetite, taking it, something into our mouths and tasting. No, that's a great one. It also, that's exactly right. So uh, in that context, fasting, uh, and we're going to have to not take questions. I've got a whole bunch of these that have gone on, but, but I want to uh, thank you for that because, yes, there's the aspect of fasting that teaches self-discipline and establishes your willpower over your bodily cravings, and that's an aspect of self-growth and self-discipline as well. So that's good. First Corinthians uh, th- uh, 3.16, uh, the remedy, uh, his presence will be a consuming fire to them, and when he comes again, God will destroy them. Uh, isn't this saying God will kill them, the vengeful God versus the loving God? No, not at all. Uh, if you understand the dynamics here, the uh, fire that consumes the wicked is the same fire that flows over the righteous. Okay, and, and uh, it, it, not in the uh, the Bible, but in other um, uh, Bible commentaries, it's described as the fire comes down through the city, out through the gates. Uh, so, in the people in the city, the righteous, but we live forever in this fire. It's the fire of God's life and glory. If you want a Bible text for that, um, Daniel chapter seven, the Ancient of Days takes his throne. F- uh, rivers of fire come out from before him, ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands and thousands stand in this fire. Um, this fire is not harmful to the righteous. This fire is the fires of truth and love that those who have solidified themselves in sin and hardness of heart um, don't want to be in and they don't want to live there and thus it ultimately results in their destruction but not from the fire from the unremedied sin in their lives Uh, Zara of Ages 162 uh, it says in the temple when Jesus cleansed the temple the people felt as if uh, felt as this is a quote felt as if before the throne of the eternal judge with their sentence passed on them from the time from time and eternity unquote this sounds like they're being judged uh, not God's character right. No, wrong. Um, it's exactly what I just said. These are the fires of truth. At the same time that Jesus comes in the temple, there's a flash of his divinity. They got a flash of infinite truth and infinite love. You see the same thing when they went to arrest him and a flash of divinity and they fell down before him because they couldn't take it. Their guilty conscience. You see the same thing uh, when Moses comes off the mountain and his face is radiating this life-giving glory of God. The people could not approach it. caused agony. Why? Because their consciences were guilty. And heavenly truth brings a conviction and guilt from the sinner who hasn't had their heart restored. And so um, this is what happened. They ran because he gave them a flash of infinite truth truth and infinite love, and they couldn't, they couldn't stand to be in his presence. I think it's also why the innocent children stayed behind, because their consciences were clear, and they were drawn to infinite truth and love. Uh, 
we just had communion at our church. Why does the SDA church specify that leftover bread be burned and leftover wine be poured on the ground? Uh, I guess I would recommend you ask the SDA church. I don't speak for the SDA church. It's not holy, the bread itself. Okay. She says it's wrong. I cannot speak for the SDA church, and I wouldn't presume to tell you why they do that or why your local church. You should ask somebody that represents a church for that, and then if you don't like their answer, ask for uh, some biblical documentation as to why that is the reason they do it. Uh, I will tell you my personal opinion sounds superstitious to me, but I would like, uh, if you if you find a biblical uh, reference for, for some behavior along those lines, I would like to, to know that. Yes? I'd recommend that person read Keith Thomas, Religion and the Decline of Magic. Yeah, so superstition. <laughs> okay, Daniel 11.41, uh, he will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. Uh, and I, that was an IV. What is the significance of these? What is the historical significance? I recommend you go to Common Reason website, go to the search engine, type in King of the North or King of the South, either one. It'll populate on the screen a blog, King of the North, King of the South. Read the blog. If you still have questions, then uh, resubmit your question. I recently had someone say that to speak against or contrary to the leadership of the church denomination is like the rebellion of Korah. I wonder if they worked for the denomination to say that. Interesting. Love to see those. Uh, you know, be, okay. I believe that what you are teaching is not rebellion, but reformation. What are your thoughts on the difference between rebellion and reformation? So I, I take umbrage. The rebellion with Korah was not a rebellion um, against quote unquote leadership. In, in, in the sense, it was a rebellion against God's leadership through Moses and what God was trying to do for the fulfillment of the promises. Uh, the, for instance, one could argue that when um, it was uh, it was made um, the 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 argument was made with Moses that he should delegate to more people some of the responsibilities that they were questioning his leadership because he didn't come up with that himself. Well, they weren't questioning his leadership. They weren't rebelling against him. Uh, to question the way things are done is not the same thing as rebelling against where God is leading. These are not, these are not the same thing. Um, but Reformation, yes, if you question any, any position theologically or otherwise by somebody in church leadership, then Martin Luther, uh, this idea, they could have used the same argument. Well, you're like Korah. You're rebelling against the, the authorized um, papal leadership. They're in, the, they're in the papal throne, and these are the bishops and cardinals, and they don't agree with you. You're rebelling against leadership. Okay? So that's a terrible argument. It is absolutely, they use it against Jesus. You're, you're questioning the Sanhedrin, the high priest. Uh, they did it against the apostles. So this argument is terrible. And only people who make this argument about rebelling against leadership are the ones who don't have truth on their side to make an argument and say, hey, here's the truth and here's where you're wrong and we can show it. I recommend that person read The Great Controversy. The Great Controversy, okay? So I, I do, I, I agree. We are reforming or finishing or completing the Reformation, carrying forward the Reformation that the Adventist Church was called to carry to the world. I agree with you completely. Um, Good day. How do you understand Hebrews 7, 1 through 3? Hebrews 7, 1 through 3 is about um, what we read in class today about Melchizedek uh, and, uh, and Melchizedek um, being... Um, 
the priest of Salem and Abraham sacrifice, uh, bringing um, tithes to him and uh, didn't have a beginning or an ending and so forth. Uh, the uh, author of Hebrews uses Melchizedek to demonstrate that uh, Abraham, when he gave tithes to Melchizedek, uh, that his sons, his grandsons, great-grandsons, whatever, uh, Levi and all the uh, priesthood fr- uh, that descended from Levi were also paying tithe to Melchizedek. So there's a priesthood of a higher order than Melchizedek. So he's using this to demonstrate in Jesus is of the higher order priesthood, is what they're trying to say, to try to undermine or to do away with this uh, locked-in system on ceremony and rules. My spouse was raised in a very legal model. Family worship is often interrupted with our different views of the law. My spouse is very expressive in how she is discouraged that our teenage children aren't keeping the rules. I find myself correcting her perspective during family worship. Not sure the best way to handle it. It is often easier to discuss it in church than at home. So first off, I would have to clarify, I don't have enough information here to give uh, specific guidance, but in general, uh, I would have to clarify, when you say uh, children aren't keeping the rules, are these home rules or are these church rules? That they're not keeping. Is she because you mentioned the worship aspect and the church aspect? Are these like the church has a rule, and then and then or are they like well they're not making their bed, they're not they're not doing their homework, they're not uh, taking the garbage out, and they're not doing their chores, okay, uh, that type of stuff. Uh, when you're dealing with infants, when you're dealing with children, when you're dealing with the immature, love sets boundaries, and as we described in class today, will step in and hold accountable and bring consequences to bear. And so while that is, and those consequences to bear should be operational in harmony with the principles of design law that they're trying to educate the child about. And so they should be somehow, somehow educational, not just punitive. So we discipline, we don't punish. Discipline means to disciple, to educate. But you can bring disciplinary actions to bear that uh, the child may not like that are educational, whereas punishment has comes from punitive, means to exact vengeance upon. That's not what we're doing. So there needs to be accountability for children who don't keep rules, but we need to assess whether the rules reasonable or the rules unreasonable. For instance, um, there are rules in our society right now that are unreasonable. The fact they're harmful. They're destructive. Destructive rules. And we have a responsibility not to bear false witness and, put, and, and be complicit with those destructive rules. Uh, if you're convinced in your heart and a school has a certain rule and you're convinced it's harmful to your child on any side of any equation, you have a responsibility to stand up for what you believe is actually in the best interest of your child, regardless of the rules, whether it's in, in, uh, in Europe where they have Saturday school and you're convinced that your child should be in church on Sabbath, or whether it's wearing a mask or getting an injection. Whatever the issue is, okay, we break rules all the time if we're not convinced that they're in the best interest of us or our family. Okay, and so you need to have that conversation. Perhaps there's a rule that the child's questioning. If you can't articulate why that rule is best for them, then perhaps the rule needs to be reevaluated. Okay, so there's a. I think it's a healthy conversation for y'all to be having. Worship may not be the best. The time of worship may not. And I will also say generally correcting a now. In, in, in disciplining with children, uh, if a parent has made an error in discipline, the healthy approach, if you're the parent who's recognized the error in discipline, is to take the parent who's made the error into a private room, have a conversation, educate them on the error, and let the parent who made the error correct it. You don't correct the parent in front of the child. 
But if the parent is bringing up for discussion issues about this in a worship setting, having the discussion there is why why you don't think this should work or that work can be a healthy conversation. But not a correcting of, but a discussion about. So, yes. Um, The death we deserved was suffered, the death we deserved was suffered to come upon, I think this is a quotation of um, Heavenly Places, page 37. The death we deserved was suffered to come upon him that immortality might be given to us who could never merit such reward. How do you understand this? To me, it seems to me that the death deserved is a reference to the end product of sin and or God's action rather than lack thereof towards the wicked in the hanging hanging of Christ and the hanging of Christ. So my understanding is it's just a straightforward thing. We a person who drinks poison according to the laws of health deserves death. You drink you drink a bottle of cyanide? What the laws of health require or what you deserve for that is death. So after Adam and Eve sinned, the human species deserved to die because of the condition, the death condition that Adam and Eve brought upon it. However, um, Jesus took upon himself the condition to cure it in order to give, open the door to life for all who want it. So that's all that this is saying. The, the death we deserved from the condition was suffered to come upon him. He took this condition upon himself in order to overcome, cure, and eradicate or purge the condition and restore the life principle in humanity. That's, that's what it's saying. Good morning, Dr. Jennings. Uh, I am treating a, uh, a counseling client for trauma after finding a loved one dead. My client has been shaking in the hands since touching the body, which was cold. Do you agree with the concept of cellular memory and uh, Bessel van der Kolk's theory that trauma settles into the body? Do you have any suggestions or resolutions? Okay, so when we talk about trauma, the trauma we're talking here is actually psychological trauma. Um, because the word trauma can also mean somebody uh, was skiing and they hit a tree and they fractured both femurs. Um, that's physical trauma. Okay, uh, And so um, we're not talking physical trauma here. This is psychological trauma, emotional trauma. Okay. When we talk psycho, now, psych, uh, psychological emotional trauma can come from experienced physical trauma. Okay. Um, yeah, well, um, no, physical trauma doesn't come from psycho, physical damage or illness comes from, but not the trauma, unless the person from psychological trauma then shoots themselves and that causes the physical trauma. Okay. I mean, okay. Um, but no, uh, the, so the question here so, so psychological trauma is always about the, the mindset, the perception, the beliefs, the internalization of the experience, not the experience itself. Not the experience itself. I, I, I encourage you to go to our website. I'm going to answer in more depth, but I, I want to just tell you. In our website, under the Chattanooga Healing the Mind seminar, there is a uh, lecture on recovering from sexual abuse, and I go into this in much greater detail. But it is the beliefs of the, how it's the experience is perceived that determines whether a person is traumatized by the experience, not the experience itself. Okay? Many people touch dead bodies, even bodies of loved ones, and are, and, are, and are grieved by it, but not traumatized by it. So there's something in this individual's belief system about the meaning of that event, not the event itself. And that meaning uh, could be um, the, the actual touching of the body in some superstitious way, 
They could have a belief about, oh, no, uh, I touched a body. And the Bible says don't touch dead bodies. You're unclean for so long. They can have some type of traumatizing belief. They could have... um, uh, the, uh, it could be related to not the actual touching of the body. The touching of the body becomes a psychological focal point for the real issue, which is the loss of who that loved one was to them. And that loss of that loved one is, is, is scary, frightening, overwhelming. They don't know how to function with that person, and it's terrifying for them. And, and rather than dealing with that, they focus on the, the coldness and the touching, and the hands become a place for, for the symptoms to be you know, kind of projected into, and they get physiological symptoms and all so forth. So I'm telling you, the primary person with, the problem with this person is mental, perceptual, belief, understanding. Now, the question about... Uh, trauma in the body. Everything in life settles into your body. We are embodied beings created by God. We only live and function in bodies. So your view of God settles into your body. Your marriage settles into your body. If you've known people who were in dysfunctional marriages and they had all types of pain, health, and sickness problems, and they got out of the dysfunctional marriage and their bodies got better. Have you ever known? I've known many like this. Of course, that's maybe it's what I do, but I know many. Okay? Foods that you eat, of course, settle into your body. But traumas that are unresolved settle into your body, and this is from a variety of reasons. Neural pathways that fire over and over again become stronger. And if we're firing ruminating negative worried pathways, we build those just in the same way. If you begin practicing an instrument and you play eight hours a day or, or whatever activity you're doing, we can see neural changes. You will build neural pathways for that. That's what your brain does. Epigenetically, we alter ourselves. We turn genes on. We turn genes off. Trauma victims, uh, ha- especially those who don't resolve their trauma, have Hundreds, if not thousands, of genes altered in certain ways, different from people who've never been through trauma. Particularly, pro-inflammatory genes go up. We have more inflammation. Anti-inflammatory genes get turned off. We have more vulnerability to mental health problems and depression. We lose neurotrophins. We have less resilience in, in, in dealing with life. We have more illnesses physically, um, uh, inflammatory illnesses, uh, cancers, heart attacks, strokes, obesity. All kinds of things happen at, at, because the trauma not resolved epigenetically changes the genes in the body. That settles into your body. Yes. But understand this. The solution for this is not bodily. Be very clear. So there, there are a bunch of perverse therapies out there that try to resolve trauma through bodily interventions. And I don't mean medication. Medication can have a place to settle some of the symptomology, but it will not resolve. The trauma stuff has to be resolved by the, by the belief and the experience of what happened and how one perceives it and when one thinks about it, what neural circuits we fire after the trauma. But there are therapies out there where, where they will take a, a, an adult your age who's been traumatized and the therapist will have you come sit on their lap and, and rock you and have you suck their thumb. And this is, this is abuse. This is perverse. There are therapies out there, uh, but this is supposedly bodily stuff to be held and to be, okay, they can be held by a loved one, not by their therapist. Okay? So I'm just saying. Um, yes, it's bodily, but some bodily interventions that people try to promote because the body is responding in some, in some of these ways is actually harmful. Get a pet. They can hold their pet, okay, and comforted by the pet. But, but uh, anyway, I think that's enough on that. Could you please share the scripture you mentioned? Um,
today where Adam killed the first animal sacrifice. That was actually, the, 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 the uh, quotation was out of Patriarchs and Prophets, which is a Bible commentary. Um, Patriarch and Prophets, page 68 is where that is stated. Adam, um, the, to Adam, the first... The offering of the first sacrifice was most painful ceremony. His hand was raised to take the life. Uh, the scripture doesn't actually declare a statement like that. Uh, the scripture in Genesis 3.21 simply says God provided uh, clothing or coverings of animal skins for them. And people take that statement that he provided animal skins uh, as the uh, first sacrifice. And you can look it up. If you look up on in the internet, first, buy, buy text for first animal sacrifice, almost always it will give you Genesis 3.21. But there's nothing in there about an animal sacrifice. It just says God provided animal skins as a covering for them. From a very finite human viewpoint, well, how would you get an animal skin? The only way you get one, you have to take it from the animal. <laughs> okay? But God, who actually created animals from dirt, could create an, a skin uh, much more easily than a living animal. So he did not have to kill an animal to give them animal skins. Okay? So, um, but, but you won't find a text that says that explicitly there. Uh, in Revela- it says, in Revelation, it is said to he who overcomes. Uh, in, yes, it is. In Revelation, the message to the church is as to he who overcomes is, is it saying he who ceases to sin? Uh, I think it's saying, uh, it depends on how you define sin. It is saying he who, uh, he who overcomes the temptations of fear and selfishness to act in ways. That, so if you continue to read in Revelation, it gives you the answer in Revelation um, 12, verse 11. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. It doesn't say these are they who are not tempted with the survival fittest drives, who are not tempted with fear. They don't love their life so much as to shrink from fear. We don't have a word in Daniel when Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were standing on the plain of Dura that they had no fear. Do you know anywhere where it says they had no fear? They were not tempted. I'm sure that they had fear, human emotion, and I'm sure Daniel in the lion's den. Is there anywhere we're told that he was in the lion's den all night that he had no fear? If he had no fear, he'd probably have taken a nap. But it says he prayed all night. See, if he had no fear, he's home in bed, he's taking a nap, he's sleeping through the night. No, he had fear. But he didn't surrender to the fear. This is the, this is the and he could have, by, if, he, if, he, if he had not uh, been faithful to the Lord, uh, well, I'm afraid. I don't want to go that. I'll, I'll change my practices because I'm afraid. He didn't change his practices. He's faithful. So uh, this is what I think it means to overcome. It means to overcome the fear and the selfishness that tempts us through trust and love uh, to God, that we're faithful to him. We stay faithful. And that's what real overcoming is about. Um, that doesn't mean that you might not... Uh, and I can give a thousand different scenarios, sleep-deprived, uh, uh, post-surgical, uh, uh, in pain, and you are irritable, and you snap at your loved one. Y- you might do that with a heart that still loves the Lord because your brain, prefrontal cortex is fatigued. This is not a heart that rebels. You're not in rebellion. And afterwards, you're going to go, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Man, I'm just, I, I didn't mean to snap at you. <laughs> And your heart grieves over it. The unconverted heart never grieves over it. It was like, why were you bothering me? You, I told you not to come in here. Okay? <laughs> There's a difference. Okay? So I think that's what it means. Let's close this prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for your, for your grace, for all that you've accomplished for us in Jesus. And we ask for your spirit to provide for us the victory, to transform us, to fulfill your purposes at this time in history. Pray in your holy name. Amen.